1: It does not constitute, either explicitly or implicitly, any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests, and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome to the Bitcoin Brainstorm. Alongside my co-host Yasin Almandra, Director of Digital Assets at ARK Invest. I'm your host Rod Rudy, co-founder of Bitcoin Park, a community-supported campus here in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on grassroots Bitcoin adoption and a home for Bitcoiners to work, learn, collaborate and build. We are now on episode number six and closing out this year with a very special episode. First, if this is your first time tuning in, here's our idea. Thanks again to the support from Kathy, Yassine, and the Arc team. We are taking our monthly Bitcoin topic-based approach at Bitcoin Park and applying it to this not-so-new-anymore monthly podcast series we are calling Bitcoin Brainstorm. Each month, we plan to have a different topic and invite amazing people from a variety of areas within the Bitcoin community. Our aim is simple, drive conversation around Bitcoin. And after going deep into Bitcoin with the first five episodes, we are now here today with a look ahead to 2024. So we have approximately 60 minutes and we'll be covering a lot. So let's do some quick introductions for everyone and then jump right in. I'll start first with Parker Lewis.
3: Rod, thanks for inviting me on. Glad to be here. Hope you guys had a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. But uh, quick intro on myself. I'm head of business development at ZapRite. Uh, We're focused on Bitcoin payments. Formerly, I was head of business development at Unchained focused on Bitcoin custody and financial services and a recently self-published author of a book called Graduate and Suddenly and hoping to help uh, a lot more people understand Bitcoin and why it's money and, and a framework to understand that with uh, you know kind of a logical and, and reasoned approach.
2: Love it. And by the way, have my signed copy right here and his book. Uh, we're going to actually do a book signing here next month at Bitcoin Park, the day before the Nashville Energy and Mining Summit, uh, which should be awesome. So thanks again for joining us, Parker.
4: And also joining us is Lucas Nuzzi. Hey there, guys. Thank you for having me. My name is Lucas Nuzzi. I'm the head of research and development at CoinMetrics. We're an analytics provider focusing primarily on Bitcoin, but on various digital assets, uh, trying to bring some more transparency and data to this emerging asset class. Uh, prior to CoinMetrics, I co-founded the first sell-side research firm, exclusively focused on uh, crypto assets and Bitcoin mostly doing due diligence on projects that are entering the space and trying to understand them from that data-driven perspective. Uh, so it's, a, it's an honor really to, to be here with you guys and, and talk more about the analytics space. Yeah, great to have you, Lucas. Also, Ryan Gentry with uh, Lightning
5: Labs. Hi, everybody. Excited to be here. Um, as Rod said, I'm Ryan Gentry at Lightning Labs, head of business development um, at Lightning Labs. We're building the premier implementation of the Lightning Network, um, Bitcoin's Layer 2 uh, for global fast instant payments. Um, very excited to be here today to talk about everything that we have in store for the coming year. Um, obviously, in the high fee environment, people remember why off-chain scaling is so important. And so we have a lot of cool things in store that uh, I'm excited to talk about. For me
2: personally, I'm very excited to hear uh, what you're, what you're going to say. Um, sir, Preston Pish.
6: Preston Pish, uh, podcasting uh, GP over at Ego Death Capital with Lynn. And uh, boy, am I excited for 2024. This is going to be a banger. Yes, sir. It's going to be an absolute banger.
2: Uh, and yeah, and absolutely, Lynn Alden.
7: That's so my background in engineering, uh, but for years now, I provided uh, research for uh, retail and in- institutional investors uh, covering traditional assets as well as increasingly uh, Bitcoin and some of the other things happening in the ecosystem, stable coins, stuff like that, uh, and some of their impacts on macro uh, in addition to them as an investment. Um, i also the author of Broken Money, uh, and I'm now involved in the venture space to, to varying degrees uh, at EgoDeath Capital.
2: That's amazing. I uh, can't wait to hear more about your book. I think we'll touch on it near the end as well. I actually did give a copy to Dr. Uh, Art Laffer uh, as well, Kathy. And speaking of Kathy, Kathy Wood, founder, CEO, and CIO at ARK Invest. Welcome, Kathy.
8: Thank you, Rod. Happy to be here. Um, that's the intro, right? Right, Rod?
2: Absolutely. Let, let me ask you this <laughs> then, Kathy, because like, and to kind of tee up the conversation for everybody. Um, I open up Twitter And everyone seems to be kind of a spot ETF expert nowadays. And I know I'd be loose with that, but it just on my my feed. And you've been in the arena since, I want to say, I don't know, 2015, as the first uh, public fund manager to gain access or even really talk about Bitcoin. Um, And you've been beating this drum ever since. And now we are here today. And this may very well be, with this uh, spot Bitcoin ETF, the most legitimate tipping point for institutional adoption we've ever seen. And so kind of to open it up to you, Kathy, then the group, how do you think this trend uh, around institutional adoption will evolve in 2024? And what impact would you say would have on the market?
8: Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Rod. Uh, first of all, I would like to clarify something that you know we're seeing um, on X, many people think that I think, or we think, this is a replacement for self custody. Absolutely not. We are as focused on the importance of decentralization as anyone is out there. But in terms of uh, giving institutions exposure, you know, unless they got the the green light from the SEC, for the most part, that 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 was critical, and. Um, they, they probably wouldn't even think about Bitcoin. And without an ETF, uh, what we would see in institutions would be major gridlock. You'd have all these departments and institutions, we have procurement for a new service provider, finance, uh, uh, compliance, and, and legal. Uh, you'd have so many touch points that it would be a long time, I think, before institutions would get involved. This gives them a, an on-ramp that they understand well. It's in uh, a, an ETF wrapper, which is, uh, has been a good wrapper for end clients uh, in our business, and it is now becoming the preferred wrapper. So, if, and, and Yassine can talk uh, uh, about this in much more detail, but based on our research uh, led by Yassine, the institutional, in terms of the price appreciation we expect during the next seven years through 2030, institutional involvement in a new asset class is the number one, the biggest increment to the price, we believe. And one of the reasons it is becoming more top of mind for institutions is they are buying into this notion that Bitcoin is ringing the bell for a new asset class. We, we did a, a paper with Coinbase with that title in 2016. It's truly a new asset class and institutions cannot dismiss a new asset class. Why? A new asset class typically means low correlation of returns. And it typically means therefore increased returns per unit of risk. And so these institutions cannot ignore it. They're competing against one another. Uh, And uh, that is why I think it's going to be uh, a very big deal for this new asset class.
6: Kathy, I got a question for you on that topic. So for the past decade, if we look at Bitcoin's performance versus everything else that's out there, it has obliterated, smashed everything with a hammer uh, as far as returns go. Uh, last year was, a, was another just banger of a year. When I look at these ETF vehicles, most likely getting approved, everybody says they're going to be getting approved here in January. Do we start to see the Black Rocks of the world and some of these other large institutions starting to say, we think it's now responsible for in your portfolio for a 1% or 2% allocation. In fact, we think that it's a responsible thing to do uh, across the board. And what type of impact would that have uh, with all the other banks if a BlackRock would would make such a statement?
8: Well, I think that's why everyone's been so excited. They struck a a, a partnership with Coinbase. That was the first big aha moment because, of course, for a, a time there... Uh, the leadership at BlackRock was not so favorably disposed to to Bitcoin. So that was very big, just that. And I think that happened, Yasin, was that nine months ago, something like that? Might have been longer, uh, more than a year ago, perhaps. Uh, So that got uh, the brain cells going in the institutional world. And um, another thing did as well, and it was before BlackRock, Cambridge Associates, which... um, is a consultant primarily to institutions, I think endowments, foundations, and, uh, and, and pension funds, in 2018, wrote a paper and said, okay, asset allocators, you may not be predisposed to liking this thing called Bitcoin, uh, but you better uh, study it and develop a, a stronger point of view because it does appear to be a new asset class. So since two thousand that's five years now, we've uh we've had that kind of thought roaming around. And the excuse was, oh, the SEC hasn't hasn't blessed it. Now they'll have no excuse. And uh, you know, if if you just talk about 1% of trillions and trillions of dollars a 1% allocation, well. You know, the scarcity value of Bitcoin will shine through uh, next year if uh, institutions do indeed decide they must gain access to this new asset class.
0: Yeah, Preston, I think you bring up a good point by referencing, I guess, just broader price movement and volatility of Bitcoin. Like, let's just separate Bitcoin as an asset and the fundamentals that it presents. And if you were just to say, okay, there is an asset that has exhibited this sort of behavior over the last 10 years. And this is what would happen to a traditional portfolio if you were to introduce that asset across the board. It maximizes your risk-adjusted returns. So, as a portfolio manager looking to, let's say, maximize risk-adjusted returns, you now you want an asset that exhibits these sorts of characteristics, independent of whether or not you believe in Bitcoin. Uh, of course, that's a separate—that's an entirely separate conversation. Uh, and so, you know, we we do work on what sort of optimum portfolio allocation is. And now that we have that sort of, let's say, potential green light for an ETF, to Kathy's point, there is no longer uh, an excuse. And so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just quickly add to something that Kathy said, and I'd love to kind of open it up to, to, to the broader group um, on what like an ETF actually means uh, and some of the sort of expectations. An ETF approval, I think, in, in our view, is not we're automatically overnight going to suddenly see billions of dollars of inflows. Into the product, uh, that this is going to, you know, be the end-all, be-all solution, and this is what we're waiting for. I, I think, in, in fact, from from that standpoint, the the expectations will likely be, you know, slightly disappointing if that's if that's the belief, at least in the short term. What it does do, though, is it provides a really important green light for allocators that have been waiting on the sidelines for something like this, and I can say anecdotally. You know, we've spoken to you know state treasurers and pension funds that have personal allocations into Bitcoin uh, that have had it for several years. That have said, "Look, I haven't been able to say anything. I can't, but I am personally invested in Bitcoin. An ETF approval would finally allow me to open up and have that conversation." Before I couldn't even have that conversation. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to flow into an ETF. But it means that you can now have that conversation, and and so I, I can say that you know this is this is happening, uh, and I think that that's sort of the the long term I'd say benefits of of having that green light. I, I think will um, are under underestimated, while per- perhaps the short term are, are overestimated.
8: I'll just add one more thing on both sides of that. So one of the state treasurers, to whom we've been talking, he said he he, he has a sense of urgency about him. Uh, in in terms of making this decision, and he mentioned the happening, and it's like, wow, state pension plan treasurer knows about the happening. That is really interesting. Uh, so sense of urgency uh, in in one regard, but I'll go back to the institutional kind of gridlock that there can be in decision making from compliance departments, or you know, legal or you know the the procurement uh, uh side of the firm so lots of lots of touch points there uh and would agree with uh with yasin there's been a lot of anticipatory moves in terms of buying bitcoin ahead of this and you'll often get in our business they'll call they'll, they'll call the trade a sell on the news so that that you'll get hedge funds buying into hedge funds and other investors buying into a, an event that they think will happen. And when it happens, it's just a sell signal for them, just then on to the next thing for them. So you, we we might see a little bit of that, but enough people are talking about that now that maybe it won't be as big a deal as it might have been otherwise. Yeah,
0: and that, that's a great segue. I, I, I think I, I want to talk about the narrative coming into 2024 that I think ha- has really been brewing uh, that started really amidst the regional banking crisis, where you saw regional banks collapse uh, in the same week that Bitcoin was up forty percent. A lot of people like to think of Bitcoin as this risk on asset, hi- highly highly volatile. I think a new narrative is now emerging, and it's it's it, uh, is gaining a lot of credibility around Bitcoin as this risk off asset. Uh, and so, coming into twenty twenty four, we're we're starting to see that you know that Larry Fink's of the world now even saying it's a flight to quality. You're you're seeing just some some of the uncertainty, and now we're seeing that that direct proof point just in in broader price action. Um, You know, maybe I'll open us up to the to the group. What are your thoughts on on that that narrative, um, and how do you see it uh, evolving in 2024? Yeah,
7: Lynn. So I think what's interesting is during the week of that banking crisis, I talked to a number of startups, and they were worried about their fiat banking connections. And they were glad they had, some of them had Bitcoin treasuries. And just imagine the irony of a Bitcoin startup worrying about the instability of the U.S. banking system versus we always hear the narrative like you know Bitcoin's too uh, risky to touch the big, the U.S. banking system. And it's like they were and it wasn't like a meme. They were like they're serious founders that you know they have their 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 life's work invested in this company idea. And they're like I don't want to you know miss payroll or have have my cash disrupted because it's something with the with the fiat system. Uh, and so that's a that's a real thing. I also think that you know um, the quantitative analysis shows that. Bitcoin is highly correlated with measures of liquidity, whether domestic liquidity or or even better, global liquidity. And during the banking crisis, in addition to being a kind of flight to self-custodial assets, it was also a rapid liquidity uh, injection into the system, and therefore assets that are kind of high-powered liquidity proxies, which is how Bitcoin is often treated by institutional capital. Uh, did well. So I think that that was a big chunk of the narrative. But behind the scenes, there really was that narrative of like, I'm really glad I actually have some self-custodial money uh, as a backup in case I I have trouble making payroll because of these sort of shenanigans. And then as far as the Bitcoin ETFs concerned, I, I I tend to agree that I think that in the near term, there might be too much expectation riding on it, uh, although it is important longer term. It's just kind of normal that any asset of this size and liquidity, it, it's normal for it to have an ETF. Uh, it's kind of odd that there hasn't already been an ETF for an asset of this scale and this this level of interest. Um, one of the beneficial things it can do is over time, if there's more allocation to it, it can increase the overall liquidity of the asset uh, it can decrease the volatility a little bit, just because it's you know it spreads out ownership a little bit. There's fewer, you know, it's just a larger, more liquid asset has it, on average smaller um, price swings, and kind of uh, you know individuals have a less of ability to move the price. And so that's actually that can then encourage things like developing market adoption, uh, where they've they've recently been kind of gravitating towards stable coins because they want that stability. Whereas the more stable Bitcoin gets. Over time, in addition to its its better scarcity and decentralization, that can help fuel that as well. So, while there are some concerns around centralization uh, by an ETF, um, I I think the bigger thing is that an ETF is inevitable at some point. Just you know, it's inevitable that large pools of capital are going to want to own the asset, Um, and it it provides kind of a, a a bulwark for the liquidity and size of the asset for the self-custodial that the you know the free-range bitcoin to flourish so I, I think that you know most things are geared structurally positive toward bitcoin in the next two years i think probably liquidity is going to be higher and so i'm not kind of overly focused on the etf but i do think that's a it's one of the obvious demand drivers uh going against the the supply having
6: kathy i have a recommendation for uh Uh, I'm going to use the word marketing, but uh, this is just facts, right, on the numbers. So one of the most astounding things that I've discovered looking at Bitcoin for all these years is, and and it frustrates me, when I see Wall Streeters and they, you know, the one thing that you'll always hear on Wall Street is if you want to manage your risk, take a smaller position size if something has a lot of volatility, Um, When we look at Bitcoin, it's almost like everybody's forgot that rule and they don't take a smaller position size because it has a ton of volatility and it has unbelievable performance over the last 10 years. Listen to this portfolio construction. You can, because Bitcoin operates in four year periods of time with the halving event, okay, I've... I believe that if somebody's buying Bitcoin and holding it for 4 years plus it's an investment. I think anything under 4 years gets more speculative, especially if you start going under a year. So let's just say you take any 4 year holding period over the last since since Bitcoin had a price and you compare that to the S&P 500, but you do it by adjusting your sizing like they preach in business school, right? So listen to these two different portfolios. Portfolio one is a 2% allocation to Bitcoin, 98% cash, and you compare it to 100% allocation. The second portfolio would be 100% allocation to the S&P 500. Your performance is better with the 2% Bitcoin allocation. Over You can pick the four-year period of time. It doesn't matter if you pick a top and you go back four years or you pick a bottom and you go back four years or somewhere in between. You can pick any four-year period you want in Bitcoin's history, okay, and compare that to a four-year period in the S&P 500. The performance is going to be higher, around 50 to 80% annualized compound annual growth rate with a 2%, okay? And your volatility is only 1.4% annualized, Okay. It's similar to the S&P 500. You're about a 50% annualized performance with the S&P 100% and the S&P 500. But your annual volatility is 20%, which is 14 times higher than a 2% allocation in Bitcoin. I think this is so important for portfolio construction going into 2024 and into the future. And I think it's totally lost on people that are not looking at First of all, a four-year holding period because you got to allow Bitcoin to do its thing. But I'm kind of curious if this is something that you guys have looked at as far as putting out there for uh, investors to consider how you guys think about holding periods as you're going to have an influx of, of new investors into your ETF product and, and just, I guess, a re-education on Wall Street as to like, how do you manage volatility risk? It's position size. So curious your thoughts on some of
8: this. We have had to do this this with ARK funds as well. We often say, wait a minute, you are asking us about risk as though we are an asset allocator. No, we are not an asset allocator. We do this, focus exclusively on disruptive innovation, which is volatile. Uh, Disruptive innovation is inherently controversial. And so, exactly, Preston. You know, do you want to put and and Yasin has done a great job with this. We're about to put out big ideas, and maybe Yasin, you can jump on after this. But uh, we're trying to educate our clients. Wait a minute, understand what we are investing in. Understand its uh, its profile from a volatility point of view. And understand the superior returns it should generate over time, uh, if we are right on what this is—whether it's Bitcoin or or whether it's um, you know re- uh, autonomous uh, autonomous uh, uh, taxi platforms. Uh, so uh, this is an issue for for the industry. Um, I think the reason many people think any portfolio. Manager and portfolio is generalist. Is so many people in uh, the investment world, the traditional asset management world, are focused on benchmarks, benchmark style investing, and they just hug those benchmarks. Uh, we are trying to break away from that because that's really investing in the past. Uh, so I think Preston, your idea is a great one in terms of this idea of just put two uh, percent in just with cash. This is a great idea. Thank you. We'll probably take it from you.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I hope
6: you do. I hope you do.
8: Did you want to add something uh, to that, Yossi?
6: Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I, I'm mean, kind of just echoing um, Preston and Kathy. And we, we've done similar exercises, not, not so much cash and Bitcoin, although we're now going to be doing that, uh, but across traditional asset classes and doing just, just normal sort of tangency portfolio, maximizing sharp ratio. You have commodities, you have gold. You have bonds, equities, emerging market currencies, and Bitcoin. And it's like based on the last five year asset class returns, what is an optimal allocation? Uh, just and, and and I mean, I don't want to give give too much away, but it's it's provocative just what that allocation into Bitcoin looks like. Um, so we 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 did almost from 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 the other way around of okay, this is the asset class returns. What is an optimal allocation to Bitcoin if you want to maximize sharp ratio? And it's and it's it's pretty high, so uh, I, I think I think that is is going to be now with something like an ETF, something uh, that institutional um, allocators can can no longer dismiss.
8: And we can talk about what that number was last year. It was six and a half percent. We just can't talk about this year because we haven't published yet.
0: Yeah. So that number last year, with Bitcoin being down from the sixty k top to the fifteen point eight eight bottom in November. Uh, if you were to take the five-year asset class returns, an optimal allocation into Bitcoin that would uh, that would maximize Sharpe ratio is a 6.2% allocation, and it's been up every year. So starting in 2015, that was a, a a 0.5% allocation, and in 2016 it was about a 1% allocation. So it's not like in 2015 we were saying you should be allocating 10% into Bitcoin. Uh, the numbers just didn't weren't compelling uh, at that time, just given the the high volatility. Now we're saying, look, this is, what the, number, this is not what the numbers say relative to traditional asset classes. And now you have a vehicle by which you can do that. Like, what's your excuse?
2: Yeah. So Preston, I love the, the fact that you extrapolated out from one year to now four-year horizon. I, let's even think a little bit even longer term. And I, I think, Parker, you touched on this in your book, as well as I'm curious from Lucas, as well as uh, Ryan, like the long-term viability of Bitcoin as not only a store of value, but also a currency. I know you've uh, t- uh, touched on a lot of different factors, but I'm curious uh from your perspective, what is the kind of the long term viability of bitcoin
3: yeah, I mean I think in my perspective, the thing that so many traditional investors or people who are new to Bitcoin worry about when they they look at it, even if they were thinking about a you know a conservative allocation of two percent or three percent, I personally think the Optimal is at least fifty percent, but um, you have to be able to tolerate a lot of volatility, and you have to understand. You have to have conviction in in, in the fundamental case for Bitcoin, and that most people are constantly worried about um, buying the top. You know, even if you know right now where it's at, you know, forty percent or so off its high. Somebody looking at it new is worried about buying it and saying, "How do I know that this point right here where I'm at is not?" You know, Bitcoin at 69k going to 16k. Um, and that kind of where, you know, I talk about fundamentals of Bitcoin is everything being anchored to the 21 million fixed supply. And not just to, to educate people about that, but to identify that the Bitcoin is binary, and that, um, that there's a finite surface area to evaluate is actually, because it's finite, uh, in, in terms of the, not just the supply, yeah. but in terms of the, the surface area to evaluate, is this thing going to, to be durable and sustainable and it's all being anchored to whether or not Bitcoin can credibly enforce its fixed supply. That's actually a, a much more finite surface area than how many iPhones is Apple going to sell? You know, we know that people need phones, but we don't know if somebody else is going to come along. You know, I think one of the big questions of Bitcoin is why won't somebody else come along? Uh, and it's all anchored in uh, the idea that money converges to one, and that if Bitcoin is already finitely scarce, and people only need one form of money, uh, everyone will continue to consolidate around the the most liquid, most secure form of money. So, I do think that um, things like the ETF are, are hyper and highly relevant to Yasin's point earlier: risk on versus risk off. Is that Bitcoin is so underowned? Like if people pull their their local, you know, network of people. Um, fewer than one percent of people, you know, have any material exposure to Bitcoin, and so it's not so much that it's a risk on or a risk off. It's that the way that Bitcoin's adopted is as as knowledge distributes, and and it's it's uncorrelated for the reason that so few people own it, and for the reason that it's the only thing, in my view, that's credibly competing with the dollar. Everything else is correlated to the dollar, because. Everything is leveraged to the dollar, except for except for Bitcoin, and so it might be volatile alongside liquidity events or illiquid events around the dollar system. Uh, but but that it's the one thing competing in a credible way because of the fundamental of its fixed supply and its and its functional um, status as money. That and it gets only more functional and greater utility as money as people like Ryan, you know, build infrastructure on Lightning and uh, other companies build other infrastructure. So. Yeah, I think it all comes back to the fundamentals.
8: So, Parker, just one thing for for people who do worry, oh, I'm top ticking it, especially given the move we've had. Um, what we usually suggest is, you know, average in. You know, are you, you you might be averaging up, and then you're happy that it's going up. You might be averaging down, and when it rebounds, you'll have a very nice average price, right? Yeah, what
3: what I typically tell, I basically say a different way, but
8: the same the same substance, which is.
3: You know, I always would tell people if they're um, kind of working on taking that leap for the first time, um, it's that to buy enough Bitcoin such that if the price doubled, you wouldn't feel like you made money. And if the price cut in half, you wouldn't feel like you lost money, um, that it was properly sized and that that if you're thinking of a number in your head such that if the price were to cut in half, uh, that you that would that would feel like you lost a lot of money that you're thinking you're anchored to a number that's too high. So cut it in half and, and retest that uh, so that you at least have exposure and that you're doing the work to understand it from there such that if in either scenario, if Bitcoin doubled or if Bitcoin cut in half, you'd want to increase your exposure. But that that uh, if you're a number that's higher than that and Bitcoin doubles, you might sell it too soon. And that if it cut in half, you might realize losses. And so it's to to get to that number where you have some exposure, you're comfortable with it. And it's not going to change your life if it doubles, or it's not going to change your life if it cuts in half. But you're, but you're re-anchoring and doing the work to want to be more exposed in either scenario. My
5: favorite explanation, echoing Parker's binary outcome, um, comes from Ross Stevens, uh, where a couple of years ago he had an interview where he said, um, "You know, we know Bitcoin is an exponential asset, right? We know that it has exponential returns. If at this point you think that the chance," That Bitcoin goes to zero is eliminated. The average expected return of an exponential asset, if zero is off the table, explodes. Right? It all of a sudden just explodes, and it's probably a lot higher than it is today. Right? If you look at like the total TAM that we're talking about um, and the total market size, it's probably significantly higher. And I think you know, for those of us you know building products uh, that are reliant on Bitcoin, not only just as a store of value. But as, you know, growing into a medium of exchange, I think certainly, you know, things like ETF, things like, you know, Binance joining the Lightning Network, Coinbase joining the Lightning Network, different, you know, um, milestone events like that certainly make the chance that Bitcoin goes to zero seem less and less and less. And, you know, if not already uh, a 0% chance already. And so I think that's like one fundamental way to think about it is if we've already passed that event horizon where the chance of Bitcoin going to zero is eliminated. like The mean expected return for this asset is just is, is enormous, and it's much higher than it is
4: today. Yeah, and just echoing some of that, so we recently wrote about the power of dollar cost averaging for a variety of different portfolios. Um, and even in the most extreme circumstances, it is a strategy that's incredibly powerful. So we simulated a portfolio doing a DCA of $10 per day from the all-time high in November 8th of 2021. And if we trace it back to uh, Bitcoin's price today, that entire portfolio would be up about 33%. So once you're past this notion that it is nearly impossible for it to go to zero, once you fundamentally understand its value, it doesn't really matter when you get in uh, as long as you're being responsible with those allocations and you have the products that would enable you to to allocate it. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be binary in the sense of, uh, oh, the ETF is just going to drive up uh, a lot of centralization of ownership. If you look at the numbers, this year was really the year of self-custody. In terms of funded wallets, post FTX, post the collapse of FTX, nearly 10 million wallets were created this year uh, with a balance greater than zero. Uh, now, it's true that users might have different uh, addresses. It's a byproduct of transacting. Um, but it is one of the fastest growing metrics uh, over the course of, of the history of Bitcoin. Uh, it is really a catering not only to the uh, soon-to-be uh, ETF investor, but also for the folks doing uh, a lot of self-custody. Uh, so those things really, I think, to um, Rod's point, uh, I think really speak to the viability of, of Bitcoin in the long term, regardless of which point you're getting involved with it.
5: And I think one of the reasons why you see those wallets and another underappreciated aspect is just the infrastructure and the tooling and the products around Bitcoin, right? The ability for a normal user to self-custody is so dramatically improved from four years ago that it's like hard to even fathom. Right. When I think back to, you know, first joining Lighting Labs, I'm sure Parker, when you think back to like the first unchained products, right. For self-custody, right. It's, it's night and day, how much better it has gotten to, you know, interact with the protocol. Like I don't think, you know, at this point, many people expect your traditional ETF buyer to you know, necessarily touch the protocol, the protocol directly, right? To be, you know, maybe running their own nodes or to be holding their own keys. However, like the barrier to doing so is not very large. If you can get comfortable with you know, the personal responsibility of of maintaining that infrastructure, it certainly is doable and viable at, at a, in a way and at a scale and at a you know consumer friendliness that was just unfathomable just four years ago. Um, so I think that's another thing just As Bitcoin, the asset grows, the ecosystem of companies and product providers and service providers around the asset are growing and improving too, um, and at along the same rate. Yeah, I,
2: I can tell a quick story, and then I want to tee it up around adoption and the investment in the ecosystem, which I find to be absolutely fascinating in 2024. So again, Kathy, thanks again for connecting me with Dr. Laffer. I actually brought a apollo 2 future bit home miner with me to go see him so i bring this device which is expensive but it's beautifully designed and it's a home miner a very small home miner and i plug it in while we're having a meeting and it's quietly humming mining bitcoin first he looks at me like really confused like i'm hustling him out of energy and you know his electricity bill is going to go up but regardless of that uh it was fascinating to show dr laffer um, how Bitcoin worked in that way. And to Ryan's point, the tooling and the cool products and services that are coming um, uh, out in the past year, previous year, I cannot wait for 2024 and beyond uh, to see. So just, and, and Lucas, that was great on the on-chain stuff. I'm, I'm curious to know any other data points, maybe Ryan from, uh, that you're seeing in the Lightning ecosystem or Parker, you're seeing at Zapright on the business side that um, can expand into uh, 2024?
4: Yeah, it was really adoption uh, on steroids on multiple different fronts, right? I think um, if you think about the institutional investor that's gearing up for uh, the having next year ETFs, applications being evaluated, um, things are really looking promising. Uh, So in in this year, um, there were $1.4 trillion in peer-to-peer transfers. In Bitcoin, uh, so on an adjusted basis, so even adjusting for uh, double sends uh, when senders and receivers are receiving the same, they're, they're the same address, one point four trillion dollars, uh, which is really remarkable. Uh, there was a really interesting growth in uh, wallets holding over ten million USD worth of Bitcoin. Uh, speaking about the you know this notion of of institutions getting geared up for these catalysts, there were computing uh, and, and new narrative narratives around Bitcoin uh, especially around Ordinals recently just driving up fees, plenty of controversy around that but if you were to look this year alone few the the network fees of Bitcoin uh, if you think about long time preference they average between one and two dollars per transaction um, even accounting everything that's happening over the past you know, weeks or so um, it is really interesting because you, you see the, all these narratives converge, right? So you have institutional investors, uh, which you know, would be allocating in larger amounts, uh, generating these new wallets that we're seeing on-chain. You have this explosion in ordinals, increasing minor revenue from fees, which is really important from Bitcoin securities uh, perspective. Uh, fees this year totaled $752 million uh, in fees which is about 7.3% of miner revenue this year. In December alone, miners made $300 million from fees, right? Because of this increase in in, in uh, issuance of, of ordinal NFTs. Um, interesting narrative. I think beyond even the the JPEGs on a blockchain, um, you know, initial use case of NFTs, there are some interesting projects that are gearing up there, especially in the music NFT space, uh, In Things beyond just this more innocuous JPEGs on a blockchain uh, uh, use case. And ultimately, that's good for Bitcoin security from that fee perspective. Um, Lightning, making strides as well, new protocols, uh, thinking about rerouting, channel management. So I, I do think post FTX, and even though this year from a narrative perspective was, was pretty painful, if you look at the numbers It looks really promising. I think next year is going to be incredibly interesting because you're going to see a lot of the, a lot of these metrics, really materialize into real world, you know, price appreciation, new product launches, uh, and it's it's really reassuring uh, when you look at the big picture combined. And I think Lucas,
5: I don't know if we're quite there, but this you know large amount of fees being earned by the miners outside the block reward, it almost is enough to offset the decrease from the having coming up, right? I think it's almost like around equal, which is not something that we've had before going into a having.
4: No, not at all. In terms of of the density of blocks, uh, if you think about how many transactions are now being uh, fit into a block just because of how ordinals are issued, um, blocks are incredibly economic dense. uh, And from a security standpoint, it really addresses one of the long-standing questions around the sustainability of Bitcoin that relate to its you know supply cap once minor revenue goes down because of the having will it actually have an impact in Bitcoin security uh, we're about to release a, a paper that studies this uh, and simulates various environments around it uh, and if you think about the attack vector when you think about contextualizing the security of Bitcoin from a cost to attack perspective um, it is so prohibitive that even this increasing fees, I think, would really not increase uh, the, the security budget by a meaningful amount. It is already incredibly difficult from a, a supply chain perspective to attack Bitcoin. So you have this convergence of topics uh, really happening at the same time, the supply cap being respected, miners really transitioning to uh, operating on the basis of fees, uh, the security of Bitcoin increasing as a result of of those two factors. So it's really, I think, the most optimistic I've been on a halving event uh, because of this coincidence of, of uh, fees uh, really increasing. But from an overall perspective, big picture, um, it is still incredibly uh, unlikely that Bitcoin would be uh, attacked or its security would decrease uh, even by this, this, this having events. And be on the lookout for uh, our, our, our newest research on this topic. We're, we're pretty excited about it.
5: Yeah. And on the, on the lightning side, um, River Financial released an excellent um, report uh, about kind of like a state of the lightning network, uh, I think in October. Um, and so like how like the most important metric for Bitcoin's progress as a store of value is the price. Um, as kind of like a proxy of global liquidity, um, the most important metric for Bitcoin's growth as a medium of exchange is Lightning Network volume. And now, you know, disclaimer: volume is it's all locally held, it's private data, so you need each company to individually, you know, share their volume report. So that's what River did, is they went and talked to a bunch of companies and aggregated a bunch of private data to kind of put together. Um, a volume number, and so they were. They were clear that they didn't get everything, but this is like their best guess at kind of what the what the volume is, and it's likely a lower bound. But they estimated that over the last two years, you know, despite Bitcoin price being down forty five percent, despite Bitcoin search interest being down, you know, forty four percent, that Lightning grew twelve x in terms of transactional volume, which I think is you know amazing, um, incredibly impressive, and a testament to all the teams that are building. And I think that was, you know, a little bit, you know, talking about what's going to happen this next year, you know, this was where we got Binance to join the network at the start of the summer. We're going to have Coinbase join, you know, probably sometime in the start of the new year, which is, you know, huge just for accessibility in terms of total number of humans that have, you know, access to the Lightning Network. That's hundreds of millions of new users each, right? Um, Which is just, you know, incredible from a network effects perspective and, you know, going to drive more and more volume, through the network. I think the other thing that's really exciting and maybe a little underappreciated um, is, you know, ordinals and tapered assets as well to kind of different opportunities to you know, issue assets and trade assets on the Bitcoin blockchain have kind of brought the Asian and Chinese community kind of back to Bitcoin a little bit, which is something that was, they were a massive, massive part of the Bitcoin community prior to the last cycle, and then kind of got redirected onto the other chains a little bit with DeFi and such. But they're coming back to Bitcoin. They're coming back to Lightning now as well, now with Binance and kind of more exchanges to join. And it's just underappreciated how big that ecosystem is in terms of users. Like one thing that Lynn says often that, you know, we, I shamelessly steal for my newsletter um, and always credit her is, you know, Lightning has a very high utility to speculation ratio, where the people that are using Lightning are using it for payments, right? For remittances, for, you know, utility uses. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if this next year that ratio, you know, changes just a little bit um, with a little bit more speculative activity occurring on the network and driving, um, you know, a lot more um, usage and volume and, and usage as Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And I think the final thing, That'll help sorry, real quick. The final thing that'll really help juice that is of course adding stable coins to the network. So that's Lightning Labs' big focus right now with the Tappered Assets Protocol is not only um, you know, making Bitcoin a new exchange, but also making Bitcoin um, you know, a, a global routing currency where you could hold dollars um, in your Lightning wallet and still transact it over today's Lightning network, where the routing node operators in the middle, you know, that are actually forwarding the payments are getting paid in Bitcoin, they're allocating the Bitcoin liquidity. Um, but the users on either end may be using a unit of account that they're comfortable with, and you know we can talk about stablecoin growth later. But it is you know massive globally.
8: Ryan, really, really interesting. Um, just for perspective, twelve x uh, to what? What was the volume growth?
5: So it was like twelve x to, and again, this is like a lower bound, but right around a billion dollars um, is what they is what they said. And so I think that's one of those things that's always interesting when talking about you know Bitcoin market cap. Like Bitcoin is as a store of value is right about now, like Lynn was saying, it's big enough to where it's kind of strange that there isn't an ETF yet, right? But for years, there was always kind of like, well, but Bitcoin's tiny. Who cares? Like it's 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 irrelevant, but it takes time to start from zero um, and get up to something meaningful in a truly decentralized way. And so I think the same thing with Lightning, right? Like a billion is, that's a real number, right? That, But, you know, compared to Visa and MasterCard, which are in the, you know, tens of trillions, we got to, I think uh, the optimistic way to frame it is a lot of upside left.
6: The exchange on layer one is tens of trillions just for, for some context here. So as we're talking about layer two and we say it's a billion, some people might be hearing that number and saying, Oh my goodness, that's a pittance. But when you compare it to layer one and the amount of value that's being transacted on layer one, the last number is somewhere in the tune of like 50 trillion that I, that I had heard. So like really large numbers.
3: Yeah. The other thing I was just going to mention is also, I think a lot of times people lack the proper context because, um, you know, it's like, if you ever go to the grocery store, no one's accepting Apple stock or treasuries or, uh, so the the payments volume uh, in, in those uh, alternative assets is zero. You know, Bitcoin's a new form of money and the infrastructure has to be built in order for there to be, you know, any transactions possible. And I, you know, I, I kind of, one of the Ways I related to is thinking about gold and how the monetary networks around gold, and then even the dollar um, formed. Where it's like you know when the first piece of ore was pulled out of the ground, gold wasn't money. You know a monetary network had to be built. Um, you know safes, vaults, settlement networks, um, and you know if you think about Bitcoin, you know kind of in its early iteration, Bitcoin's like ore being pulled out of the ground. It's very um, you know a little bit clunky. Ryan mentioned you know the proliferation of. Uh, harbor wallets and self custody methods. Then, you know the next layer is is you know lightning and, and payments. You know, but you actually you know, imagine the first check that was created. You know, in the U.S. financial system, uh, and how many you know check check transactions were going through in the uh, you know few years after that. So I think you know having that context um, you know around the scale is important. And then just on our side for the merchant side for the payments, we see you know like. You know, when you think about on-chain payments, on-chain payments—you know—final settlement for a dollar. You know, uh, ask somebody to wire you money, and it's thirty dollars. You know, so a lot of our customers are small businesses. They're either software developers, or lawyers, dentists, uh, doctors. Um, that that kind of the trend that we're seeing. You know, Bitcoin Park, thank you. Uh, is that uh, it's small businesses because you know, as Kathy was mentioning about institutions and having all like the you know trip wires around even buying Bitcoin. Um, it's hard to gain consensus and the more decision makers are, the, the slower the decisions happen. And so if, if you're thinking about people saying, you know, not just I want to buy Bitcoin, but I want to accept it as a method of payment for my business, the the tight, more tightly held that business is. Uh, the fewer the decision makers and the, the, the deeper someone's knowledge are, the, those are the people that we're seeing adopt Bitcoin payments. Because in my kind of uh, logical order, you first have to understand why Bitcoin would store value over time before you then want to invest in infrastructure to say, I want to be paid in Bitcoin. But the reality is also that the dollar is becoming too volatile to, to be money um, and that when people can observe, you know, five to 10 percent, you know, moves in, in prices over you know a few month period, as a as a small business owner or any business owner that that makes running your business particularly difficult when your input costs are um, are, are that volatile and losing value, not volatile and increasing in value. So uh, more and more people are are looking and saying, yeah, I I, I don't want to uh, tolerate that volatility, and uh, and adopting Bitcoin as a method of payment.
2: Lucas, did you want to confirm some numbers?
4: Yeah. So if you look at all the transfers on chain uh, for Bitcoin this year. Unadjusted, yeah, it would be over $10 trillion, but a lot of those are between wallets that are held by the same person. So when you adjust that, it goes down to $1.4 trillion uh, if you remove those those transactions.
0: Yeah, we go back and forth internally as to whether or not we should account for that, get that, that, that adjustment. I, I, we typically do just because of what it represents, and that is the ability to transfer value in a permissionless, uncensorable, irreversible way, because technically you're still leveraging and settling on this neutral layer, which, which is a transaction. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's not transferring ownership. You're still leveraging it in some way. So even like an internal wallet transfer, in theory, you're going on this neutral settlement layer to transfer.
4: Yeah, you might be consolidating wallets, which is still useful, right? Uh, it, it's it's really a matter of, do you count transactions that are only amongst different peers, or do you count all transactions? If you were to count all transactions, uh, that would be over $10 trillion. Uh, between different peers, it would bring it down to $1.4 trillion uh, this year, which is still incredibly uh, surprising and, and, and impressive in terms of of, of a total value. Um, it's still, I think about 10% of, of, uh, uh, fed now, but it is a lot of money being settled, uh, between two different entities.
6: Really, really, really big number for there not to be an ETF approved in the (laughs) United States and to be acting like this is not something to be paying attention to almost at an absurd level of, of obscenity that we could be talking about tens of trillions of dollars being exchanged between addresses. And they're not being a focus on this or a, an ability for large institutions to own it. It's it's insane, actually.
0: Important to note that this is significantly down from last year, too. So this is not even an, an all-time high. Uh, yes. And, and,
6: the number I quoted earlier was from a year, more than a year ago.
8: Just uh, for frame of reference, uh, for people who are learning from uh, this Bitcoin brainstorm, what can you refresh my memory? What's Visa's volume per year?
6: No, I I believe it's in the tens of trillions. It
0: is. is. It's around 12 trillion. It's between 10 and 13 trillion on any given day. Uh, And we did an analysis in 2018 where we were beating the drum because Bitcoin had surpassed PayPal's volume for the first time. PayPal was around 500 billion. And the anecdote there was, oh, my goodness, it is within an order of magnitude of visas over that five year time period. Last year, it far exceeded visas, uh, and now is roughly in line. Uh, and so, you know, when uh, we we like to we like to whenever there is, let's say, a Bitcoin skeptic, just start with the question. Don't think about price. Give me an estimate on how much you think Bitcoin settled uh, in dollar in dollar value last year, and you'll get you'll get answers that range from you know, maybe a billion to $10 billion. And I was like, are you talking about this? I wasn't talking about this hour. I was talking about this year. (laughs) Um, And so those are just very, I'd say, you know, simple anecdotes and proof points just to, you know, get people understanding that this is being used.
7: For additional context, Visa was founded in the 1950s. Uh, And and so the fact that this is a tenth of the the settlement volume, and in addition, Visa is running on top of the dollar network effect, which depending on what what bounds you define it, you're talking tens of trillions or hundreds of trillions of dollars of value, Um, and the settlement volumes for FX are just enormous. Um, and so when you're comparing, you know, Bitcoin has to bootstrap its own unit of account, its entire own network. And so it's, it's starting from scratch. Uh, you know, it's riding on the network effect of the Internet and, and telecommunications. But other than that, it's starting from scratch. And so that's actually an even more remarkable number, I think, in the, in the first 15 years of Bitcoin's existence compared to the head start that all these existing uh, intertwined network effects have.
6: To this idea that everything is good for Bitcoin. Uh, There's a lot of debate that's currently happening right now with ordinals and fees and everything blowing out on layer one. But what's rarely talked about is the massive incentive that you are setting up for people to build on layer two for this billion dollars of settlement that happened on layer two last year. Um, I think that that's really important. I think that it's actually a really good thing that we are building out that infrastructure and creating an incentive structure for people to go there and uh, bank the unbanked all around the world, get them on the network, uh, allow them to settle in zero fee type environment on layer two. I could sit here right now using a Noster app and, and ping uh, one, two, three, four, people, five people in this call within a minute. I could send them zero fee without asking them what their wallet address is or anything right here while we're, while we're sitting here on this call.
0: And then to maybe just to add to Lynn's point as well, not not just built on top of the dollar volume, but they're they're creating volume based on a number of transactions too, right? This is like a high throughput use case in a way where Bitcoin is a settlement layer for high value transactions, um, which kind of just signals, oh, there you go, Preston,
6: right there, sending. Damn. Parker asked for some SAT, so I just no sent button. it to him. It's that fast. See how fast I
3: did that? I, I literally, literally didn't mean, have to I'm ask not, him anything; I just sent it to him. I'm not so I wonder. What <laughs> I <mean. laughs>
5: yeah. um,
3: it might go to me though.
5: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you know uh, another way that we like to talk about it, since we're focused on you know multi asset stuff, is you know Visa and Mastercard support 120 different currencies, right? Bitcoin and Lightning Network right now support one. Um, and it's a currency that is in the process of being monetized and is still becoming a global store of value, right? Um, so I think, you know, there's, uh, it's it's a interesting benchmark and an interesting goal to shoot for, but certainly something, you know, that we think is attainable over time, but not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, those are large network effects to unwind um, to Lynn's point.
7: One number to be aware of is that Fedwire um, settles about one quadrillion dollars a year, which is—it sounds like a comic book number, but um, that's the number they're at now. Uh, and and that's—you know—I mean, they they serve the United States. They, you know, obviously uh, part of the rest of the world uh, goes to that as well. That's so that's that's actually probably the closest comparison to Bitcoin because it's a settlement network. It actually does about the same number of transactions as Bitcoin is capable of. Uh, kind of the same ballpark. Uh, and every transaction, so to put it in a number, it does something like 200 uh, million transactions a year, uh, and they average about 5 million each. So you get a quadrillion in gross uh, volume. Um, and Bitcoin is basically the open source global version of that uh, with its own scarce unit of account. Uh, and so it, in theory, it's better. Uh, and so that's kind of the an idea of the total adjustable market. And so Bitcoin... You know, at at a little over a trillion in in kind of um, you know entity adjusted volume, or over ten trillion in in gross volume, uh, that's that's kind of you know it, it's it's making progress, but there's still a very large surface to go after. That's also one thing I brought up against the whole like um, Bitcoin security issue, where they're worried about it being able to generate fees. We I keep pointing out that if you go ten years in the future, fifteen years in the future, if this thing gets anywhere anywhere near The volume throughput, if it gets 10% of Fedwire, for example, um, I I think the conversation about fees is going to be more like what it's been now about how they're high, that there's a lot of demand for block space. Right now, it's because of ordinals, but I think you know, fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, uh, when you have tight block space, and if you have that 5x or 10x adoption, uh, that's why I'm not really concerned about Bitcoin's uh, security or fee market. I think that it's mainly an adoption question. More so than a design question.
5: It's always been desirable to have on-chain fees, and that's why Lightning has been developed specifically for like, okay, we're gonna have you know 200, 300 sat per byte, um, you know mempool environment. You're gonna need um, you know a layer that is you know from a technical perspective, it, there is no upper bound on the number of transactions that could happen on Lightning. We're only bound by the amount of capital allocated to the network. In terms of you know how much transaction volume can happen, and it's all you know that fee market is completely segregated from the on-chain fee market you know by design. So I think to Preston's point, this is all great. This is all desirable. You know, will this be the fad that persists and keep fees these high? Like it'll probably get priced out by you know international settlement and you know large institutions just like they settle you know settling on the Bitcoin network instead of on Fedwire. Um, probably, but this is a good test case and a reminder of, you know, the energy needs to be spent on building, you know, off-chain, true layer two um, transactional uh, layers that, you know, inherit the same security and decentralization of the Bitcoin network uh, and, and provide kind of trustless assurances um, for settlement just in a, a different fee market.
3: Yeah, that was one thing I was going to have one press and I got your thousand sats, even though I'm not on Noster. That's so how did that happen? How, do, how I was I, I able... How was How
6: I bad. able to send you a thousand sats? You didn't tell me anything. You didn't even yeah. think you were on Noster, but I just sent you a thousand sats instantly yeah. with no fees. How did that Thanks. happen?
3: Thanks to our friend, Rockstar Dev. <laughs> but the thing I was going to note in the education, you know, for people and what Ryan just mentioned of trustless, that the, that the fact that I just got your thousand sats and now I've got them and I could send them on to somebody else. If Rod pulled up a, a you know, a lightning invoice, I could send him a thousand sats and, um that when you receive a a, doll, a dollar payment on Visa, that is not trustless. You know, you'll see in your bank account, you know, pending for you know settlement, you know, will be available in a few days, potentially. Or if you're using Stripe, it's gonna typically take longer than that. Wait, give, give me oh, you sent him a thousand cents I thought you were well, in all
6: <laughs> of how how this straight to Bitcoin going, Park baby. right
3: there. I just did yeah. it. He didn't even have to tell me the address, Rod. How did Imagine that give that money? Yeah, but, but, but this idea that they're trustless, right? Where it's like Rod and I both have now a thousand assets that we could we could pass on. And you can't do that on Visa because Visa is a trust based network. It's a credit based network. And these transactions that we're passing back and forth with each other on Bitcoin, once they're sent, there's there's no takebacks. And there might be credit based products that form on Bitcoin to, you know, help, you know, with settlement, but uh, but 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 the Bitcoin transactions that are happening are all happening trustlessly. And the second they're received, they can and confirm. Oh, they can there
6: goes it. Lynn Alden. She just got a thousand sats. You guys are really passing it? these addresses really can, fast. Can like can how, is, how
0: are we Star doing Dev. this so quickly? Can you explain the Rockstar Dev uh, implementation?
6: <laughs> no, this is just Noster. I'm yeah, just but, using yeah. Noster. So like you're having a convergence of wallets with social, decentralized social media, right? And when you combine these two things together, all of a sudden your wallet tech just got a million times better, right? Because I don't have to ask you what your address is anymore. Right? It's ba- it's basically decentralized Venmo or decentralized PayPal, but I didn't have to ask you for your phone number. Right? And it like I chose to follow you. You didn't ha- you didn't have to follow me back, but I could still send you a thousand sats right now. Right? Because you registered your decentralized layer 2 wallet with your decentralized social media, just like Twitter. Right. And I just followed you and I could, I could send you a million sats if I wanted to. And it's just like, boom, it just arrived. You don't even know where it came from. Right. But uh, you know, things are changing fast. And if you're paying attention, I guess it's just an exciting world to, to, to be in. And if you're saying that this thing's the devil and it's, you know, it's, it's devil tech and all this other stuff, I guess you can just continue to live in this old legacy world of pain. Right, it's pretty exciting to be in 2024 coming up here. Let's go, Preston. I'm glad you
2: brought the heat today. Uh, speaking of which, I'll, let's say we got a little ten or fifteen more minutes left. You mentioned one word, which was convergence. And Kathy, I think on the first or second brainstorm, you highlighted convergence and like all these factors coming together. And I'm just kind of thinking out to 2024, and I'm curious from this group, like what is maybe one distilled big thing or big, I, I hate using the word prediction because, you know, but like, what's the one big thing that you're looking forward to in 2024 for the group?
7: I'll start. So I, my, I like the rise of these little Bitcoin communities around the world. So people are focused on things like ETFs or nation state adoption. I like small community adoption. Uh, and so, so Bitcoin Beach uh, was an early one and that inspired a nation. Um, And, you know, that was kind of a special case, but now you see, for example, this Bitcoin jungle in Costa Rica. There's uh, Bitcoin Ekasi in in South Africa. Um, There's Bitcoin Lake in Guatemala. Um, There's the Indonesia Bitcoin Conference hosted by a woman named Dia. There's uh, now for two years running. Uh, And then there's the um, Africa Bitcoin Conference in Ghana hosted by a woman named Farida. Um, And so when you see in the developed world these kind of questions like, you know, what is Bitcoin's use case or it's it's a solution in search for a problem. It's like, well, broaden your scope and look around the world. You know, if you look at Africa, for example, there's over 40 currencies, and every and they all have like these capital controls wrapped around them. Uh, they all have conversion frictions between them. They have fake exchange rates between them. If I send dollars to someone and for doing graphic design work for me in Nigeria, uh, unless they have a dollar bank account, they're probably not going to receive it in dollars. If they do, it's going to be at a fake exchange rate. You know, it's like they, there's all these conversions that happen that are all frictions. They're all permissioned. They're all basically siphoning off the top. And the cool thing about Bitcoin is that you you just go around borders, uh, you know. So just like just like uh, Preston was sending around Sats, you know, if if I was working with a graphic designer anywhere in the world and they hold up a QR code or have a Noster address, I can just pay them on the internet. It goes around their little locked up local uh, capital market, their local banking system, and it can get to them. Uh, and so you know, the this historically we have 160 currencies in the world. There's two main ways that capital goes in and out. One is ports of entry, which are obviously very physically controlled. And the other one is wire transfers, and those banks are highly controlled. And they almost have like a bloodbain barrier between like, if you send dollars, it just gets converted if they want it to into the local currency. Uh, it's, it's very controlled. And so what what Bitcoin does, and you know, to some extent stablecoins do, is they just break that open. They just say, okay, we well, just route around all of that. You can bring infinite value density through an airport, you can send infinite value density, in, uh, near infinite speed, um, over the internet, and just go around that and empower the people in those those places. And so those little those little hubs that are building up organically, uh, and you know as some build up, another one sees them build, and they say, well, why don't why doesn't our country have that? So they they build the next round, and that's why there's over the past you know three four five years there has been this kind of cascade of more and more of these little Bitcoin hubs. Um, even in the United States, you know, Bitcoin Commons, Bitcoin Park, these are US hubs. Um, and And so both in the US, um, you know, now there's real Bedford in UK, right That's like another little Bitcoin hub. So they're either centered around a city. In New York, there's pubkey. Right? So these little, these little kind of persistent meetups or these, these real estate or these kind of networks that are, that are building these hubs. And then I, I especially love the ones that are foreign, because if anything, that's the environment that needs it even more. And so I think that's, the, that's one of the most unstoppable aspects of it. And that's also one of the most inspiring, in my opinion.
0: What's the nature of Bitcoin adoption being so grassroots and bottom up and why it's so dif- both so difficult to stop but also irreplicable as a model? Right. It's like kind of this, gra- like, like Parker likes to say, gradual, then, then sudden, like, oh, my gosh, what happened? We just blinked an eye and, and 10 years passed and n- now we have the adoption that we're seeing. Well, it's because it's just this slow buildup. And and the, the incentives are one such that once you understand Bitcoin, you buy Bitcoin. then once you buy Bitcoin, you know, you have a, a vested interest to 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 build around it. Uh, and so I think that's really unique to, to Bitcoin and the nature of its network effects.
5: What I'm really excited about in terms of convergence for 2024, tie together kind of Preston's and and Lynn's comments. Um, So, you know, the folks are familiar with the Carlotta Perez framework of kind of innovation and growth. It's that things happen in alternating cycles of infrastructure build out, which enables applications um, that drive usage, which then, you know, demands more infrastructure build out and over and over and over, right? Over the last 12 years, which, you know, or four years, which Preston highlighted excellently by sending those, you know, easy lightning payments, um, the infrastructure around Bitcoin and the infrastructure for application developers has gotten just phenomenally good. So much, so much better than four years ago. And so, what I'm really excited about for 2024 is developers who are not necessarily Bitcoin native, um, but who are outside the Bitcoin community coming and integrating with the Bitcoin network and with the Lightning network. Um, for their applications and for all the things that have been built out to make it easy for them to do so. And so this is both, you know, communities in, you know, Ghana or Colombia and actually, Lynn, like we track this internally, we've seen um, like 25 plus new communities both get started in Q3 and 25 new communities get started in Q4 roundabouts. So this is, it's happening consistently globally. Um, so this is fintech entrepreneurs or just community organizers, you know, adopting Bitcoin. Um, in their local communities for their meetups. This is AI developers, which, you know, Rod and Kathy, you guys had, and you've seen you had the great episode with our CTO, Roast Beef, um, talking about the AI and Lightning convergence. Um, You know, that's really exciting. I think also just general fintech companies, like we haven't really seen too much fintech adoption of the, you know, Bitcoin network for transactional use cases. I think we're going to see a lot of that um, next year and year later. And, you know, it's super helpful having an entrepreneur like David Marcus um, leading the way there at Lightspark um, to you know leverage this network to get more entities onto Lightning, um, and then I think the final piece of infrastructure that's really missing is as much as we all love stablecoins, giving these developers that are not Bitcoin native the stablecoin option and giving them you know a USDT or USDC to transfer around. I think just lowers the barrier to entry, and you know the tech is good enough now, the infrastructure is good enough now to provide a hundred x better user experience. Um, And I think this cycle is going to be the one where we see a lot of these net new entities coming to the Bitcoin network for transactional use cases, strictly because it's better tech, right? Strictly because not for ideological reasons, but strictly just because it's better. And they can do things like Preston um, just showed that were previously impossible. You just can't do that, you know, on Visa or on MasterCard or anything like that. It it has, it can only be done on Bitcoin and Lightning.
4: Yeah, echoing. both of those uh, comments, you know, I was born and raised in Brazil, I was recently down there. Uh, and it's interesting to see that effect of smaller communities really converging around Bitcoin. And it's, you know, I've been custodying Bitcoin for over 10 years. I worked in Bitcoin custody for many years. It's never been easy, easier really to, to interface with, with Bitcoin. And it's not frequently that you see this increase in the usability of Bitcoin. You know, being able to do more things with with Bitcoin, uh, things like protocols like taproot assets uh, with, you know, asset issuance, uh, ordinals, while at the same time having this drastic increase in user experience. So I think with catalysts such as the halving, such as the the, the ETF um, and interest increasing as a result of this. This increase in both user experience and protocols and usability, I think, will be fascinating to to watch over the course of 2024. Um, I haven't really been as excited for for a year in Bitcoin uh, since uh, 2024, um, especially post you know everything that's happened this year. Uh, it's exciting to uh, to move on and, and have these catalysts to look forward to. Very well said. I don't know if I should tee up
2: Preston yet or, or I'm ready. Yeah, I, I know ready.
3: you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want Preston to go last, you know, cause I don't, you know, I don't want to like, I'm at, fired on do me. How about okay. Parker. Sorry. Go ahead, Parker. And he's going to bring the heat and it's not fair having to go after this. <laughs> <laughs> so one, I think that the most important market event for me for the year will be the having, um, as it, as it typically always is. Um, I think that uh, that is a, you know, kind of the probably when it it happens and, you know, April 2024, the board of governors will not meet. Nobody will meet and Bitcoin will work exactly uh, on a decentralized way with no one in control and the rate of issuance will get cut in half. Um, That will be the the, the market driver um, of all market drivers. I think it reinforces not only Bitcoin scarcity, but also the Bitcoin is working. And even though the Bitcoin enforces its fixed supply every 10 minutes with each next block, it's more observable to people on the periphery when that happens without any central coordination or control. Um, I also think that the dollar is going to become increasingly volatile to the downside. Dollar inflation will persist. And um, I wouldn't be working on Bitcoin payments if I didn't think that the kind of tipping point of more people saying pay me in Bitcoin um, is, you know, set to happen and the infrastructure is getting Strong enough to enable orders of magnitude more people uh, and business owners to to be paid in Bitcoin. So from the market side, I believe it's the happening, and then from a theme perspective, uh, you know increases of orders of magnitude of businesses deciding to to be paid in Bitcoin.
2: Deal. April twenty twenty four. For some reason, I had May in, in my mind, but now it's probably moved up with the, the blocks being confirmed and such. Uh, Kathy, how about how about yourself?
8: Okay. Convergence. So this is all around convergence, Rod? Absolutely. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the convergence between financial services, legal, regulatory to get us into the spot Bitcoin ETF. But that's not really my answer. Um, I think and, and it touches on what almost everyone has said here. Um, you know, Block with Cash App is surreptitiously working through the, you know, rest of the world. It, it, you know, ran into regulatory barriers about five years ago and just basically said, to heck with this, Uh, let's use Bitcoin. And so, I think a lot more is happening through uh, through block and Bitcoin to um, to give uh, people in other countries, you know, more purchasing power and uh, and and uh, uh, security generally in their in their wealth. Uh, and then the other the other one. Um, and, and by the way, I say that you all may not think that's uh, that important, but most people in the financial world could care less. Uh, When they're looking at block, it is about small businesses, very US centric and so forth. The other one, we did a Twitter, uh, well, X spaces with Elon Musk. And I was sure he would bite on, on Bitcoin because he wants to turn X into an everything app. And I just think that for him would be a very natural, natural way. So no convergence there yet. Uh, however, I'm looking forward to hopefully having more spaces, conversations and bringing this up because it is so important. And while he says it's not on his mind now, I think he might have been trying to throw us. Just saying. Yeah.
2: You know what I think, Kathy? 2024, Bitcoin brainstorm with Elon and a small group of people would exactly. be a good one. Or-
3: that That'd would be, be fun. Hard.
7: We could do
2: yeah. it on Spaces too. Um, yeah. We could. Although I, I, it would be fun, and I am not as familiar. Do they have video on Spaces yet? I know that they're slowly they're, rolling that out.
8: Yeah, they're slowly rolling it out.
2: Okay. Cool. So we could do that on Spaces. Um, very well said. And I and I and I think there will be more and more of this. Um, I agree at the business level, and then the global adoption, uh, as Lynn said as well.
6: Uh, Preston. For All you, right. Sir. So there's five stages of grief, right? <laughs> there's denial. From the Genesis block up to 2021 was the denial phase for Wall Street. They just didn't think that this, even though we, we saw like unprecedented, I think we got over a trillion in 2021. There was still this denial. 2022, I would describe as the anger phase when you moved into the, into the second phase where everything was thrown at this thing to see if they could uh, take it down. And uh, people thought it was going to go down. You had, you know, the ECB saying this is the end of Bitcoin at 16,000 USD and all this type of stuff. So that was their anger phase. Now we're moving into the bargaining phase. So you're seeing the, you know, this big discussion around in-kind versus cash creations. But the fact of the matter is, is Gary Gensler and the SEC and everybody else in the government is bargaining with Bitcoin, thinking that they can do something. But what they're failing to recognize is that I can hold up my phone and Ryan Gentry, who I hadn't sent a thousand sats to yet, I can push send, right? Without asking him his address and boom, it just like goes, the the money just magically shows up in his account. And of course, this is the one time that is not unable to, you don't have your your wallet configured with an Oscar. So how do you beat something like that? You can't, you can't beat something like that. So what's going to happen to the legacy financiers that aren't as astute as Kathy and and being ahead of this curve for seven plus years is they're going to go into a state of depression in 2024, and then they're going to go into a state of acceptance, which is the final stage of grief where they're going to have to eventually deal with this thing. And I can tell you, I am here for it. I am ready for it. Um, I'm very excited because of what this brings to humanity so that they're not being stolen from with this unprecedented debasement rate of seven to 10% on an annualized basis based on the global uh, M2 growth rate that's happened for our entire lifetimes. And it's about time. It's about time that that the people get this and the engineering sound, it's built out, it's usable as people can see. And uh, I'm just so fired up for 2024. And I'm just very thankful that you brought me on for this conversation because this is an exciting year that's coming up. That's awesome.
2: Well, uh, I just want to thank everyone uh, for participating in this. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to Parker and Lynn. We're going to leave uh, their, each of their books, Gradually and Sed- Suddenly and Broken Money in the show notes as well. Um, you guys all brought it. I cannot wait for 2024 and do this again uh, many times